Make sure you're subscribed to Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit that subscribe button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. The new left has consistently been anti-humane since the 1960s, and I think they want so deeply to remake the human person in their image that they're willing to run over acres and acres of bodies to get there. You wouldn't tell someone in 1860s U.S. who's fighting for abolition, oh, don't be a culture warrior. No, you'd say that's great. It's good that we should be fighting against the abomination of slavery. But in the same way, you also wouldn't want them to ignore spiritual reality only for the sake of anything political. One of the things that is perhaps becoming more and more obvious in our contemporary context is an awful lot of people who have perhaps sat in church every Sunday of their lives do not always know what God considers pleasing. So our prayer for Israel is not only that the war that is currently ravaging that region would come to an end, but we pray that their war against the Messiah would be brought to an end so that they can be grafted back into the olive tree that they were broken off of because of their unbelief. Colorado trumpet players love issues, etc. Sometimes you're, you're sick and you don't know you're sick. Maybe you've been sick so long that it feels normal to you to feel sick. Maybe you've been slowly poisoning yourself. That has happened in American society, the slow poison of feminism. And there are so many, including many Christians, who don't know that it's toxic. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. live on this Thursday afternoon, October the 19th. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to be talking about detoxing from feminism with Dr. Carrie Gress, author of the new book, The End of Woman. We'll answer the question, why we should baptize babies with Dr. Jordan Cooper of Just End Center. And we'll look forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary with Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy. Dr. Kerry Gress is fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, author of the new book, The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us, and a recent column for The Federalist titled Six Ways to Detox from Marxist Feminism for a Happier Life. Dr. Gress, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. You say that while men can still articulate a good man versus a real man, no categories remain for a good woman versus a real woman. What do you mean by that? Mm. Yeah, well, I ran across the study that was done. It was actually Nancy Piercy's new book called The Toxic War on Masculinity. And she talks about in this book how men all over the world know the difference between a good man and a real man. You know, the good man is is selfless and courageous and thinks of others. And the real man is sort of narcissistic or, you know, falls into these ways that serve himself. But I, I started thinking about it and I realized like we don't have those categories for women anymore. They just have been really completely erased. So I was intrigued by that and um, realized, you know, so much of it is because of feminism and because feminism is really pushed us in this direction to be Marxist women instead of being good in the form of moral categories that we used to understand very regularly. How have we all, in to some degree, unwittingly accepted the Marxist categories mm-hmm. that were advanced by feminism? Yeah, well, I mean, the first one is just the belief that women are really going to be ultimately fulfilled through their careers and that, you know, there could be nothing more Marxist than that in terms of productive work being our salvation. We've also 
allowed the left to really categorize those who oppose feminism. You know, the left makes the women who embrace feminism look very happy and healthy and successful and all the things that women would love to be. But on the other hand, they've also made it really clear that those who they disagree with, you know, they're painted with broad strokes into doormats or women in red bonnets and red robes who are part of a fertility cult. Those women are visually trotted out at all kinds of political events whenever there's a debate on abortion and whatnot. So they've defined both sides. And we've kind of fallen into this belief that we either have to be all in with feminism or we're the doormats and there's really no gray area to any of the discussion publicly. You say that uh, feminism has urged women to feel guilty. How so? This is one of the things that I, you know, was fascinating to me just in my own personal life trying to sort of wade through this, but feminism sort of keeps all of us from asking the question, is this really good for us by just this constant barrage of, of guilt, you know, feeling like, well, if it weren't for feminism, we wouldn't be able to have this career, or this degree, or, you know, all the things that we, we know that we enjoy without really any sort of reflective thought on, well, maybe not all of it is good. Maybe not all of it has been been great for us. And, uh, you know, I think that the feminism has done an incredible amount of damage to the culture, and that really never gets aired. We certainly are, you know, celebrate when people can be critical of things in a healthy way, and yet the guilt that feminism sort of heaps on us prevents us from doing that with any kind of regularity. What are what you call the negatives of feminism hiding in plain sight? I think that feminism, some of the negatives is are we don't know just how indoctrinated we've been by it. I think that also just this idea of that we all really do think like Marxists at this point, that's happening. I think the other reality is, is that feminism, because of the focus on career, it's really thrown children and husbands under the bus and that nuclear family. So I think those are certainly elements that have been problems, but again, hiding because we feel guilty about looking at them. How do you respond to those Christian women who think that feminism can be reformed? Yeah, well, I think, you know, based on my research, the one of the, the, there were three main aspects that I discovered about feminism back from the almost earliest stages of it. And the first one was um, this idea of free love or getting rid of monogamy. The second one was the occult. And the third part that, you know, was consistent throughout the era was this idea of egalitarianism and really collapsing down men and women and any kind of hierarchy into sort of just this very low, sort of in the name of equality, collapsing down hierarchies, anything that has that military, anything that has sort of a hierarchical structure to it. So those three things, I think because of that, Christians really can't, you know, adhere to feminism in this radical form. And I think that that's something that we've thought of feminism and just in terms of like it's a pro-woman approach, we hope that it somehow can be reformed. But the, the sad reality is it's just completely inconsistent with Christian principles. And that's a hard thing, I think, for us to grasp because so many of us want it to be, you know, a place where we can have a discussion and build bridges with other non-believing women. But I think that it becomes a real problem when you look at the fundamentals of it that are just so incredibly anti-Christian. Talk more about those those three things, free love, occult associations, and smashing the patriarchy or egalitarianism. Mm -hmm. These all started, actually, they were articulated together by Percy Shelley, who was the son-in-law of Mary Wollstonecraft, and she was very much involved in sparking the movement, but he's the one that brought all those pieces together. 
that's really what feminism was moving it. I mean, partially because there was this desire to help women. And, you know, so much of it has been based on good intentions, but we know that good intentions are always not sufficient to really make the change that we want. And so feminism was asking the question, how do we make women more like men instead of how do we help women as women? And so those pieces all sort of became the avenue through which feminism operated throughout the first wave. And then, of course, much more abundantly in the second wave with the advent of Marxism. How has feminism itself proven to be deeply anti-woman? Well, I think, again, when you're asked the question, how do we make women like men, then fundamentally what feminism has done is shut off our fertility. It's rejected that aspect of it. And through the last century, we certainly have seen a lot of it, but abortion is, this is why it's so vital and such a lightning rod in our culture day. Because through the means of abortion and birth control that women reject their fertility and then are pushed in a way that focuses much more on these masculine values that you know we see so prevalent in the culture. And you know this is why we have such a hard time even defining what a woman is because we've denuded ourselves of those fundamental aspects and characteristics that are very female. In that vein, you say that women are mothers not only physically, but also psychologically and spiritually. What do you mean by mm. that? I think this is a key to the whole understanding of womanhood because the fact that feminism has tried to get rid of our fertility, but we know that our our being a mother doesn't just happen on a biological level. You know, we've got, think of a grandmother, an aunt, or a colleague that you know has this very maternal sense about them, not in an oppressive kind of way or controlling kind of way, but just looks out for people and cares about them and has rich relationships and anticipates needs and whatnot. So yes, those things happen on a psychological and a spiritual level as well. And I think because of the fact that we've stripped ourselves of the the biological reality of motherhood. We've also thought, well, we can't be mothers in these other senses either. And, you know, it's interesting because we have seen this huge increase in pet ownership in our country. And I think some of it is this, this desire for women to continue to mother someone or something. And pets have become really a surrogate to that because of the fact that we've decided that children are not the best way in which we ought to live our lives as women and mothers anymore. How has feminism taught that men are the enemy? Yeah, I think this is a great question and, and a really important one, fundamentally because it's feminism has really been energized by the kind of envy that we have allowed to fester and women towards men, sort of this desire to be like them. So I think that that's the starting point of it. But it's also really vilified them and asked them to simultaneously become more like women so that we there's this desire that they change and, and that we sort of get rid of all of the genders. So this is a key piece that, you know, rather than being encouraged to strengthen our relationships with men, the war between the sexes has really just gotten to be a bigger divide, a bigger chasm between us because of feminism and this desire to be like men and have all this anger towards them, but then ask them to be more like us. I think it sends a lot of really confusing messages, certainly to men, but you know, it's very hard for us to really flourish when this envy and desire to constantly be in some sort of combat or challenge or struggle with them is always there. What did feminism do with the word home? And how do we take that word mm -hmm. back? So this has been one of the interesting pieces I've, and just through a lot of my research, I, you know, I've noticed that 
all of the arts related to home are back in fashion, things like knitting and baking sourdough bread and gardening and all of those kinds of things. But the the word homemaker is still not in fashion. It still feels like a taboo or, you know, there's some deep condescension uh, to those of us who are stay-at-home moms as if that's somehow not sufficient or real career. The interesting thing is that we've basically taken the home and we've made it into a hotel. It's really a place where people just kind of spend the night, but there's not this real focus on the family and really learning where to love, how to love, how to be loved, and to just really know who we are, especially for the children. That's just where the identity is formed in those strong relationships that are cultivated in the home. So I think this is, you know, in a certain respect, it's it's an exciting piece to start looking into because of the fact that the home has become such an appealing thing to people. They really want it to feel like a sanctuary. They want it to feel comfortable and safe and feel nourished and protected. And these are all the things that women do so well. So it feels like almost that these trends are out in front of us in a way that the rest of us haven't really caught up with psychologically yet, that we've got these desires that you know it's time to, for us to start really looking at and appreciating them instead of pretending they don't exist. Is that a reaction to the false binary that you talked about earlier, that you're either a full-blown feminist mm-hmm. or you're in the cast in the handmaid's tale? Oh, yeah, I think absolutely. I think there is... This all comes from this idea that, you know, we're made to do productive work outside the home. That was Betty Friedan's goal with the feminine mystique was to sort of make us feel like we were missing out on something or make us think that we were victims somehow by being at home. So that was really where this idea that we shouldn't have any desire to be with our children at home came from was just the sense that it was this awful thing for women. And of course, this is what we're seeing as women coming back to it sort of unwittingly, but without obviously the trappings of the word homemaker. Why has feminism resulted in women being less happy? Largely because it completely goes against our human nature. It's trying to make us into men when we're really hardwired to be women. It, it's denying a you know huge swaths of our personality and and character and even biology uh, by by denying our fertility and and again this idea of motherhood. So when you do that, you are fundamentally taking away from women that which is so fulfilling to them, these rich relationships that we create in our homes or in our workplaces or among extended family or, or friends. So that's, I think, why so many women are so unhappy and why all of the metrics show that the feminism has not created healthier, happier women, but very sad women. Dr. Carrie Gress is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, author of the new book, The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us, And a recent column for The Federalist titled Six Ways to Detox from Marxist Feminism for a Happier Life. You'll find a link to this column and to the end of woman at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk on Demand Archives. Dr. Gress, thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. When we come back on this Thursday afternoon, we're going to answer the question why we should baptize babies. Dr. Jordan Cooper, Executive Director of Justin Center, will be our guest.
You can listen to our new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn, and includes an introduction voiced by Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Just go to issuesetc.org, enter your email address, and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression, issuesetc.org, and enter your email address. Criticism. I just had to call in to respond to this week's installment of Never Trump Drivel from Terry Mattingly. Compliments. I love the interviews and insights because they help me battle the slings and arrows of outrageous theology and practice. Clarification. Is there a point where, without baptism, infants go to heaven, and after which time they go to hell if they're not baptized? The Issues Etc. Comment Line, 618-223-8382. Contending for truth in an age of anti-truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. America's tradition of liberty depends on having colleges and universities that equip young people for the responsibilities of freedom. At Concordia University Chicago, freedom is a pillar of our education. We prepare our students to live as free, self-governing citizens. I'm Dr. Rachel Ferguson, director of the Free Enterprise Center at Concordia Chicago. I invite you to visit us. Discover what it means for freedom to become a pillar of your future. Learn more at cuchicago.edu. At Memoria Press, the Simply Classical curriculum is specifically designed for students with significant learning challenges. This complete program includes everything you need for a school, self-contained classroom, tutoring, or homeschool to make a classical Christian education accessible for any child. To learn more, visit us at simplyclassical.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Simply Classical, a beautiful education for any child.